Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 20, 28. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured, that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. Why do we do what we do in the divine service? How are pastors formed for service? January 24 through 30, 2021 was National Lutheran Schools Week in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Wittenberg Academy had the privilege of hosting our second annual National Lutheran Schools Week guest speaker series. During that time, Reverend Dr. Bernal Eckhart, Reverend Dr. Carl Fikencher, Mrs. Holly James, Reverend Larry Bean, and Deaconess Sandra Rhine did an excellent job teaching us. Today, we will hear excerpts from Pastor Eckhart and Dr. Fikencher. First up, we hear from Reverend Dr. Burnell Eckhart. Pastor Eckhart taught us about the divine service. People need to know to some degree why we worship the way we do. I actually was not raised Lutheran. When I was living in Sheboygan, Wisconsin in my childhood, I was not Lutheran. I came to a Lutheran church, I think, for the first time when I went to college in Madison, Wisconsin. And I, it was very foreign to me, the whole liturgical approach. I thought, well, what in the world is seems kind of Catholic, but I didn't really know what Catholic experience was either. I was just, I was not taken aback. I was not offended by it. I was just made curious by it. And actually, that's what the liturgy is supposed to do for people that are new to it. It's supposed to make them curious. This goes back a long time. That There was an element of worship called uh, the mysterious and things are always going on in worship, which are mysterious to us. That's intentional. We don't want to make everything mysterious because then people can't understand what's happening. And one of the hallmarks of the Lutheran faith, as I'm sure you know, is that we ask the question, number one question in the catechism, what does this mean? And the Lutheran church is a hallmark for answering those questions, as you know from the catechism. Still, there are always ingredients in worship, as indeed is the case in the Holy Scriptures themselves, ingredients that we don't yet understand, and it keeps us grasping and groping for. That is intention of liturgical worship, to keep us ever wondering, what, what's going on here? What, what's the mystery that I can't quite um, And that's intentional way of getting us further into it. So what I'm going to do is get you into some of these questions. It starts with a very basic question. Why do we worship? What is worship, in other words? And of course, the simple answer is that is our meeting place with God. We, we hear God speak to us, and we speak back to him. We do this, of course, we speak to him in prayer, but more specifically, in the prayers that have been a part of our Christian experience from the beginning. In fact, although, as you know, we are always encouraged to pray, to pray for one another, to pray for things we need, to ask that God's will in particular with regard to this or that be done. And we are perfectly free to formulate our prayers in our own words. And we should. However, the better prayers, the ones that should never be neglected, are the ones that He gives us to pray. The words of God on our lips are the best kinds of prayers. This goes back to the synagogue and the Old Testament, times before Jesus came. The prayers that the people said that were codified, that were used routinely in their worship are encased in the book of Psalms, the, Psal the Psalter. Those are, that is the prayer book of Israel. And those prayers marvelously are the words of our lips, the words of the lips of David, the leader, the, uh, 
the sweet psalmist of Israel, he was called. Those prayers are David's words and God's words at the same time. This is how gracious God is. He not only bids us and encourages us to pray and promises to hear us, he even gives us the words to pray. As perhaps you know, when he gave the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus gave the Lord's Prayer and the disciples asked him, teach us to pray, as John the Baptist taught his disciples. And Jesus said, when you pray, say this, our Father in heaven, and so forth. So God is that gracious that he not only tells us we may pray at any time and cast our concerns on him, he also gives us specific words to pray so that we don't have to be good composers of prayer. Sometimes we stumble and stammer and we say, I don't really know how to pray. And in fact, you know, the spirit intercedes with sighs too for words when we pray. But we sometimes would like to have words put in our mouths. That's why when people are in the hospital, for example, they like to have a pastor visit who will pray with them because then the pastor formulates the prayer for them and they just listen and pray along and that, that's comforting. Well, the scriptures do that too. They give us the words of prayers that we are free to use, the words of the Psalter, the words of the Lord's Prayer, and so forth. So uh, that said, we get into the next question, why is Christian worship liturgical? The liturgy is nothing other than the word of God in our use and on our lips, as well as hearing God speak to us. We hear the words of God coming into our ears, not only in the sermon and in the readings, but in the liturgical parts. Every part of the liturgy comes directly or almost directly from the word of God. Not only that, those parts of the liturgy are on our lips. We feed them back to God. We give back to him what gives to us, and we know, therefore, doubly that it will be blessed. So that's what liturgical worship is. However, there's a further question here. Why do we follow liturgical rubrics? And some find them offensive. Where did the liturgy come from? How far back does it go? Are we bound? Is it required that liturgy must be done in a certain way? And the answer is, well, that's not quite the right question. We are nowhere given the exact formulas for our worship. And in one respect, we are free, just as I started out this presentation saying, you are free to pray in your own words. However, it's much better for a Christian to have the words of God supplied for him that he might know in a more informed and clear way what to say, how to say it. That's comforting for a Christian heart. And that's really what happens in the liturgy. And this, as a matter of fact, is the way Christian people have always worshipped using liturgy. The other day I was talking with a member about this question, where the liturgy comes from, and he kind of thought, well, he thought maybe it came from about the 15th or 16th century. And I said, well, no, actually it goes back before that. The, the codification of our liturgical form and structure, the way it came to us, goes back much farther than that, although it's flowing and it's got soft edges, you might say, the basic form of worship we can detect goes back at least as far as the year 600, which was when Gregory the Great, Pope, the Bishop of Rome, decided to codify what they had so that from that point on, we had a definite indication of how they worshiped and how that worship was passed on through the years. It's called the Gregorian, uh, Gregory the Great, the Gregorian Psalter, the Gregorian chant, you maybe have heard that term, and Gregorian worship. 
But that wasn't when it started either. All they did, the scholars that he asked to do that, all they did was take what had come before that, the Galatian Sacramentary and other things that they had at their disposal. And as a matter of fact, although the farther back you go, the more hazy it gets. Like, we don't know exactly what they had, but the farther back you go, the more it becomes clear that this seems to have come from the apostles themselves. Now, I don't know if you have Bibles in front of you. I want to look at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40. Let all things be done decently and in order. Perhaps you've gone over that at some point. Perhaps you've heard it. The Corinthians were a kind of a scrambled group. They didn't know what they were doing. They were speaking in tongues. They were speaking all at the same time. It was a kind of a madhouse. And St. Paul wrote this epistle, 1 Corinthians, to try to settle them down and to give them some structure. And at the end, toward, toward the end of this epistle, he says this, let all things done decently and in order. In the original language in the Greek, that phrase, in order, was kata taxin. And that means, kata means in or according to toxin, order, or an order, which means you could reasonably translate this according to an order. In fact, this was done by liturgical scholars for centuries, that they thought that quite possibly, and maybe probably, this passage, let all things be done decently and in order, is an exhortation from the Apostle Paul himself to worship according to liturgical structure, which, of course, is exactly what the, what the Corinthians needed to learn. In addition to that, look at Acts chapter 2. This is the fledgling early church that was just started on Pentecost. Of course, they weren't just started then. They were the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Acts 2.42, you have this. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Okay, now, that can be and should be, I think, explained like this. The apostles' doctrine and fellowship. The apostles' teaching what they learn from the 12 apostles. And fellowship. Fellowship, koinonia, perhaps a term, term you've heard. Here's what I'd like to do with this passage. We recall that in Scripture, in the original manuscripts, there were no punctuations at all. So anytime you see a punctuation in Scripture, that's an editorial insertion or interpretation. What if we were to do this with our punctuation? Make that a colon. And the little word and can mean and often does mean without question, namely. So you could put this. That is. In breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, let's parse that a little bit. Breaking of bread. That comes from probably comes from the Emmaus Road experience on Easter Sunday when he was recognized. Remember the stranger that came to visit the two disciples on the Emmaus Road? They didn't know who he was. It was Jesus having disguised himself until he went in. They said, abide with us for toward evening because he made like he would have gone further. And so he stayed with them and they sat down to eat and he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to them. And when that happened, they recognized him. He revealed who he was, and then he vanished mysteriously. And they were full of joy, and they went back to Jerusalem to tell the others. Breaking of bread was the term that was used in that event. And that's taken over now by St. Luke, actually the same author, because Luke wrote the uh, book of Luke, where that passage is found, and the Acts. Taken over as the primitive, the most primitive original designation for the Holy Sacrament. They called it the breaking of bread. 
So let's say in the breaking of bread, the sacrament, and in prayers. Well, again, in our context, in our 21st century life, uh, especially when we are surrounded by so much of evangelicalism, which kind of despises liturgical worship, to put it bluntly, we think, well, they, they were they were holding their hands every chance they got when they were alone and they prayed, they put what was on their heart into God's ears and so forth. And certainly they did that, but as I've been saying, they much preferred and often went to prayers that were provided for them by the apostles and by the structure that they were given already from the Old Testament. So let's add the word, the prayers. In other words, the liturgical structure. So the early church, from the very start, had a liturgical structure that surrounded the Holy Sacrament. They didn't just sit down and get a loaf of bread and a bottle of wine and repeat Jesus' words and then share it. They knew from the start that wouldn't be proper. That would be more or less like what they were doing in Corinth, which was a mess. They were Drinking too much of it, they were getting drunk, and all sorts of terrible things were going on there. The early church Christians knew from the start, they had learned this from their experience growing up, the synagogue, this would not be right. They continued in the structure that surrounded the Blessed Sacrament as kind of a safeguard for the sacrament, and as well as they could do, provide a fit surrounding a fit environment in which that sacrament would be given. This gets down to another question, actually. Not only why do we worship on Sunday, I'll skip that one for now. Why do we dress well for church? Nowhere does the Bible say we should. Not one of the Ten Commandments. If you can't or you don't, you haven't broken any divine laws. That's not the question. The reason people do, the reason people have, goes back to this mindset that they had, that Christians tend to have, that this sacrament, this holy communion, needs a proper setting to the best that can be provided. So we put on our Sunday best, and matter of fact, what we insist on doing is putting the pastor in something special. This is why pastors work vestments, especially beautiful vestments as they are able to provide. I taught a few times in Russia where they didn't have as much money. Sometimes they were not able to do that. In fact, the chaplain on the battlefield might not be able to, but when you do have the capacity, we like to dress things up the best we can, not because it's some requirement or some hoop we have to jump through, because that helps us in our weakness to focus our attention on the fact that here is the meeting between heaven and earth. Here is the time and the place where God meets us, where Christ gives us his own body and blood to eat and drink. There is nothing more special, more important than that. You know the account of Mary and Martha. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet and hearing his word. That is the Christian heart. That's what we want to do. And when we do that, there's so many opportunities for distraction. We know ourselves. We know our hearts. We come to church. We're thinking about all kinds of other things. So we need reminders. We need ways to keep our mind focused. Little helps, you might say. And the liturgy does just that. Now I skipped the question. Back to this one. How do we worship on Sunday? Now, Sunday worship is one of the things which is actually different from the Old Testament. As I assume you might know, Sabbath day was Saturday. In fact, it's in the commandments that they were to worship on Saturday. They were to not to work. That means they were to worship on Saturday, the seventh day of the week. Somehow or other, that all changed. When you get to the New Testament, I mean, even in the book of Luke, chapter 4, uh, Jesus is the preacher in the synagogue that we would presume was 
probably on a Saturday, although we don't know when it was. Somehow or other, it all changed to Sunday. Well, we happen to know that Sunday is the day of the resurrection. First day of the week is when Jesus appeared to his disciples. He didn't tell them, now from now on, let's make Sunday the main day. He didn't say that. But already they were thinking, man, this is the first day of a new week, and Jesus appears to us, and they're just utterly thrilled, of course. Except for Thomas, he wasn't there. He was with them the next Sunday, and bam, Jesus appears again. Sunday after Easter, that is. Now, there's another interesting account. It's in John 21, where they're tired of waiting. This weird thing about Jesus' Easter appearance is he was with them the whole time of the 40 days. He would appear, and he would vanish. He would appear, he'd go away. So it's sort of like he's treating them like children, almost playing games with them, hide and seek. Where'd he go? He's back. Um, he's treating them like his children. So where is he? We've seen him twice now. And you have this interesting exchange between Peter and the other apostles where he says, I'm going fishing. And they say, we're going with you. Now, what I like to wonder is whether he is saying, let's go do something with our abilities because we haven't been fishing. When would they not have been fishing or working? Well, I think probably on Saturday because they never worked or fished or did anything on Saturday all their lives. So he says, I'm going fishing. We'll go with you because it's probably Saturday night. And they fished all night, caught nothing. And then if my theory is correct, we got another Sunday morning and there's Jesus on the shore. Now add to this one, the fact, the undeniable one, that Pentecost happened on another Sunday. So the disciples are already thrilled about what's been happening to them on Sunday. And now you get Pentecost on another Sunday. It's just a natural outgrowth of this reality that Sunday was always going to be a very special day for them. And I would say that the fact that Sunday is today, this great day of worship, the day when another week starts, the day when calendars have their beginning of the week. Of course, they always did because Sunday was the first day, but it was a special day ever since then, which is a further indication, incidentally, that when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we're not talking about something that was invented by the church, by the apostles. It's another indication that we're talking about reality. This is really what happened. Let's go into the liturgy itself. Why is church music so different from all other kinds of music? It's not like drum beats of our society. Some people wish it would be and try to make it that, and they put you know, praise bands up on stage, and they try to make it more enjoyable for people in their everyday lives, and they say, in fact, some churches even have... Uh, coffee house type worship where you have sit at tables, kind of like a lounge, and they call this worship. That's not right, because when you do that, you are telling people this is your everyday life. There's a story that I like to recall of what happened, and it's the Russian leader. This was Oh, back centuries ago, was a pagan. And he was, they were conquering all kinds of countries and they were expanding their empire. And he wanted to know what all the gods and worships of all the foreign countries were. So he sent out his emissaries to investigate. And he sent some to Constantinople, where the Hagia Sophia was, the holy wisdom church, famous structure that's sadly now 
now turned into a mosque. But those days, it was a place of beauty and high liturgical worship. They witnessed this, they came back, and they said to him famously, we did not know if he, we were in heaven or on earth. And in the end, it converted him. And all of Russia became Christian because of the beauty of the Holy Liturgy. Uh, so that's one of the reasons church music and church worship is so different, should be so different from what you have on earth. It's a reminder again, help, helpful reminder, a, a prop for us who need lots of props. It's you're in a different place. This is, this is the meeting place between heaven and earth. In fact, it's one of the reasons traditional churches, cathedrals, were built with these high arches, Gothic structures with arches. If you stand in the back of a church like that, you'll see ribs. As you look down toward the altar, you see a rib and a rib and a rib. That is to suggest to the Person who sees that, that you're looking through our current environment to the environment of the kingdom of heaven. You're looking at the center of that, where you're looking through, and this very hard and center of it is the altar from which the Holy Supper is given. But that's what I need. I'm weak. I'm a poor, miserable sinner. I can't be counted on to think of all these things on my own when I go to church. I mean, some people, maybe they think they're strong enough to do that. Maybe they think I'll be fine. I, I might as well take it into my everyday life. Not me. I need this structure. I need to be reminded because there's so many things going through my mind as I come to church. I need Various ways to be reminded that here is the place where God meets man. So that was just a portion of Pastor Eckhart's presentation from Monday of National Lutheran Schools Week. On Tuesday, Reverend Dr. Carl Fakencher shared with us about the formation of pastors and deaconesses. In the brilliant foresight of Wittenberg Academy, this day is the day that we commemorate Titus as a pastor of the church. In fact, I just came from chapel at the seminary here in Fort Wayne and heard a very fine sermon again today, this time about St. Titus as a man that St. Paul appointed as a pastor to appoint other pastors recruit pastors, really, uh, for work on the island of Crete, which is an island near Greece. It's part of Greece, actually. And it was a place where uh, St. Paul was uh, encouraging mission work. Paul himself didn't go there as far as we know, but or, although briefly, but uh, Titus and others then would do the, the, the work of, of caring for God's people in that place. Uh, so it's a great day to do this, and I, I'm glad that you scheduled it that way. Let's begin with prayer, and then we'll kind of talk about our topic a little bit. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your magnificent wisdom, you raise up pastors to lead your precious flocks of lambs. Father, we who are in the office of the ministry confess what you know so well, that we are totally inadequate to that task. And yet we thank you for using us and honoring us in this way. We especially thank you, Heavenly Father, that in your means of grace, your word and sacraments, you've given us that by which we really are quite amazingly able to shepherd your precious sheep unto eternal life. Be with us in this time today as we celebrate the day of St. Titus, a pastor of the church. Be with us in this hour as we uh, in the Wittenberg Academy celebrate the office of the ministry that you have created for our good. And also be with these young people as they look ahead to whatever God has in store for them in their service to you, especially if it might be in the office of the Holy Ministry or for women serving as deaconesses. Father, we realize that this holy office exists only because, but surely because, 
your son, Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross, has reconciled the whole world to God and thereby given us something of eternal blessing to proclaim. So it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you again, Mrs. Benson, for having me to do this. Grace, thank you for your arrangements. We appreciate that uh, very, very much. It's uh, great to get to be a part of this. Uh, Wittenberg Academy is something that I've appreciated very much, particularly since I was up in Minnesota at Mrs. Benson's congregation a number of years ago and kind of kind of learned some of the early uh, seeds of what was going. Some of you guys now have been Wittenberg Academy students for, I guess, basically all of your your uh, school careers. So you've been very blessed by the work that so many people have done, and it's fun to uh, get to support that. I also um, appreciate Wittenberg Academy from uh, the many times I'm on Issues Etc., the radio program, and during the programs that I'm doing, there'll be an ad for Wittenberg Academy. Yeah, yeah I know those guys. I'm, I'm, I'm on with that. That's great. So it's fun to literally get to be on with you guys this way. Actually, I hope that sometime in the future, any, many, or all of you could be here on our campus at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and that I might meet you in person. Obviously, what we have here is magnificent. It's great to get to, to be together by uh, distance when we can't be together in person, but being in person is, is, is very, very nice. So it's great to get to be with you guys. It's, it's a real treat. Uh, let me do say from the very beginning that uh, I'll, I'll make reference from time to time how many of the things that we'll talk about here as to how God teaches pastors to be pastors, also apply to the way God raises up women to be deaconesses in the church. The office of deaconess is an office that God created to support the office of the holy ministry. So we have many, many women in our church these days who uh, serve in that capacity. And that's also a very holy call uh, that God extends uh, for the support of the, uh, the pastoral ministry and to care for especially the physical needs of God's people all over the world. So it's fun to, to get to include that in my, my presentation. Jeremiah chapter one, God says to Jeremiah, while you were in the womb, I, I chose you, raised you up to do this amazing thing that I'm gonna now telling you to do and sending you out to, to do. Uh, you, Will, you're right, exactly. God actually knows who his pastors, who his deaconesses will be, before we're born, even from eternity. Then though, um, he actually starts to do the shaping of that person, at least in the most uh, dramatic way, at the time we're baptized. Because as you guys know, when we're conceived, we're already sinful. We already really deserve eternal suffering in hell from the moment of conception. That's just the way we're conceived since Adam and Eve sinned, since our parents are sinful. We're actually, um, so opposed to God that the last thing we'd ever want to do is serve his kingdom. We really wouldn't want to do that at all. We really only want to serve ourselves until we're baptized. For me, uh, do the math on this, that was May 22nd, 1955, okay, when I was about a month old. Some of you were probably baptized when you were a week old or a couple days old. And already at that time when you were very, very tiny for most of you, but it could be for adults later on, for most of you, when you were very tiny, already God was changing you, transforming you, uh, recreating you, making a new person. We, Paul says to Titus, actually, in chapter 3, he says it's regeneration. A new person has been generated who does believe in Jesus as the Savior and is, therefore, eager to serve God in whatever ways God will eventually need her or him to deaconess service or to pastoral ministry or to all the other ways that God also has his people serving. So from the moment of our baptisms, already God is shaping us as brand new people to serve him. And some of those people he will eventually shape into pastors, others also into deaconesses. So then uh, God teaching pastors to be pastors is something that continues for, from, from then on. Uh, if we were blessed to be baptized in a uh, Christian church as infants, which means very likely our parents were active in church, then they brought us to church over the years that followed. Uh, very likely they told us about Jesus at home. And we pray that it would be every day uh, when you guys are parents someday, whatever other vocations you have, pastor, deaconess, accountant, uh, 
teacher, banker, um, you'll be wanting to share Jesus with your kids every single day, because that is also how God is teaching them to grow in faith and teaching some to be pastors or others, women to be uh, deaconesses. So through our lives, as we are uh, brought to worship, as we are uh, told the stories about Christ and his love for us as we as we grow up, that's part, a very important part, a very, very important part of God teaching pastors to be pastors. It starts a long, long time before someone comes to the seminary. Uh, along the way, um, we get encouragement with that sometimes. Sometimes our parents might say, uh, Carl, have you thought about being a pastor? Now, my, my mom and dad never said that to me in so many words, but what they definitely did do was bring me to church, tell me about Jesus every day, tell me about my grandpa, who was a pastor, about two uncles who were pastors. And it was very clear from what my mom and dad said and did all the time that being a pastor was a magnificent, magnificent uh, service to God's kingdom, if that's what God led me to do. Then sometimes we also get encouragement from our pastors. And I, I really hope that each of your pastors will just kind of, you know, sow the seed, drop the hint now and then. And uh, if your pastor suggests that, take it seriously. You don't know for sure that's God's final word for you, but it's worth, uh, worth consideration. So we get little encouragements like that along the way from Christian people, from our families, from our pastors, may, maybe even friends. If, if you're starting to get a little bit of a uh, an inkling like that, some people are suggesting it to you, um, you're kind of thinking about it a little bit, um, you might ask yourself then some questions. The big question, of course, is, is God equipping me to be a pastor? Is, is he uh, making... Uh, things fall into place for me to serve him as a pastor someday, or perhaps for a woman as, as a deaconess. And uh, the questions might be things like this. I'll give you a, li a list of questions. Number one, real simple. Do I enjoy reading the Bible? Do I enjoy hearing Bible stories? Do I enjoy talking about God's word? Do I, do I like um, the things that happen uh, in worship, in Sunday school, uh, in my Christian schools I'm growing up? Do I, do I enjoy hearing about Jesus in those situations? I hope all of us do, you know? And if we do, that's an encouragement to consider that we might serve by being the one to tell people those same stories about Jesus. Uh, number two, have people told me that I might be a good pastor or that I might be a good deaconess? If your parents, if your pastor, if others have suggested that, Take that really seriously. You may have heard that from, from somebody. Number three, do friends come to me with questions about faith? Number four, do I enjoy sharing my faith? Do I enjoy telling people about Jesus? Again, we hope that every Christian is excited about that. But Malachi, maybe when, when uh, you talk with your brothers and sisters about Jesus, maybe you, you really especially enjoy that. And that, that might be an indication that uh, you might be a very, very good pastor someday because that's what pastors get to do all day long, isn't it? Tell people about Jesus. Do I care about other people? Oh, again, every Christian should and really does care about other people. But that's something that maybe um, is uh, 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 maybe prominent in some of our minds. You know, if you ever find yourself saying to yourself, I wonder how he's feeling now, or, you know, she looks kind of discouraged. Uh, you know, is there is there something that, that I could do to, to help, to make him feel better, make her feel better? That kind of thing is very much a part of what pastors do all the time. If that's something that already uh, is of interest to you, uh, then that's a reason to consider perhaps doing it for your whole career. And then two more questions, number six and seven. Number six, can God use me in huge ways? Like he used Jeremiah. Can God use me in huge ways? And number seven, am I a little bit scared about being a pastor or a deaconess? Now, the truth is, the answer to numbers six and seven for everybody really should be, can be, should be legitimately, yes. 
Can God use me in huge ways? You bet. God can and God does use all of his people in huge ways. Not all of those ways are as a pastor or a deaconess, but some of them are. If God makes you a mother of three or four or five or seven kids, if God gives us the opportunity to be the mother of of many children, or even a few, even one, that's a huge thing. It's a huge way that God is using you. It's a huge thing that God is using you to do for his kingdom. Um, But also, some of us God uses in the huge ways of calling us to be pastors or asking us to serve as deaconesses. And uh, number seven, am I a little bit scared about this? Everybody ought to say, sure, a little bit, because it's a really hard job. Being a pastor is a really, really hard job. Being a deaconess is a really, really hard job. There's no question about that. We heard that brought out very well in the sermon this morning on Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, when when St. Paul uh, called Titus to be a pastor and to call other men to be pastors on that island of Crete, it came with it the guarantee that they were going to be rejected by some. They were probably going to suffer. Uh, they were going to have the very difficult task of knowing how to speak God's word to certain people in certain situations. It's very, very difficult. And so we ought to be a little bit scared about it, really. And in fact, if we're a little bit scared about it, that should in itself never be a reason not to be considering the office of the holy ministry or to be a deaconess. Being scared about it is normal. But if we see some of those other questions with also answers of yes, these are things we really ought to consider seriously as to maybe God calling us to be a pastor or a deaconess. And then as a result, we really want to begin to uh, explore further. Uh, If if we find an answer of yes to one or two or three of those other questions, then we really ought to go to mom and dad and say, what what do you think? Do you think I could be a deaconess? Do you you think I could do that? Uh, Do you think I could be a pastor, dad? Do you think I'd be? Uh, When I asked my dad that question at about about confirmation age, I guess, uh, dad said, my father, whose father had been a pastor, uh, my dad said, it's the most wonderful thing you could ever do. And if, if you want to do that, your mom and I will be absolutely supportive of it. We would, we would be delighted. He said, there's some things you should think about that are challenging. Uh, the very kinds of things I mentioned before. Uh, in this world these days, some people think of being a pastor is the dumbest thing you can do. You don't make a lot of money, you know, for example. Why, why would you, you're a smart kid. Why would you, you know, throw away the chance to be a lawyer uh, to make, not too much money being a pastor. Okay. And my dad said, you'll be aware of that. And my dad, here's another one my dad said, you guys. My dad also said, this is important. My dad also said, when he was growing up as a pastor's child, pastor's son, um, he always felt that there was quite a bit of pressure on his mom, that is the pastor's wife, and on himself and his brothers and sister that is the pastor's kids. He felt that there was a lot of pressure that people put on the pastor's wife and the pastor's kids, kind of like to be, you know, to be perfect, you know, to be better than everybody else. And so my dad said, I know that family will be very important to you. Think about those things. And I did. And so for quite a few years then, I asked all of my pastors about those two things. And every one of my pastors had a very, very similar answer. On, on, on the thing about how, you know, some people make fun of you, you don't make a lot of money, they, they all said, nah, that, that, that just didn't really bother them very much at all. And, and even the money thing, they said, ah, that's not like it used to be. There, there was a time when, when, when pastors, um, when many people in our country were, were very poor, called the, the Depression, uh, when a lot of people didn't have jobs, pastors were you know, pretty flat broke. Uh, that's not the case anymore. We do fine. It's true you don't get rich. I could have made a lot more money being a lawyer. You could make a lot more money being a doctor or a lot of other things. But uh, you do fine. You don't get rich, you don't go broke. It's fine. And then the other thing that was huge was all of my pastors said that the expectations that people put on the pastor's wife and the pastor's kids nowadays are really a lot more normal than they used to be. There, there probably was a time 
when uh, many congregations assumed the pastor's wife would automatically be able to play the organ and direct the choir. Now, my wife is the best there is, and she didn't play the organ or direct the choir. She's the best pastor's wife there could ever be. And people in our congregations loved her. And every one of my pastors said the same thing. Likewise, the expectations of pastor's kids were, were pretty normal nowadays, where they expect pastor's kids to be normal. And the pastor and the pastor's wife should uh, be very comfortable with the idea that their kids are going to be normal. They're, they're going to wiggle in church a little bit now and then, you betcha, of course. Uh, they're not always going to know the answer to every confirmation question. Nah, they don't have to. They're, they're, they're normal kids. And, and hearing that sort of thing from my pastors over the years was very helpful in me um, deciding I want to be a pastor. So with that then goes this, um, when you kind of think that maybe God might be calling you, you said yes to several of those questions along the way, uh, not only do you ask your parents, but also ask your pastors and, and see if your pastors encourage you. And they know a lot about this education business for pastors, what pastors learn, how they're taught to be pastors. So they can kind of tell you a lot of stories about how that works and give you a real vivid picture of what's ahead if you decide to go that direction. So that's very helpful. Also, here's a freebie for you. Um, uh, how many of you guys know what Christ Academy or Phoebe Academy are? Anybody know? Most of your pictures I can't see moving right now, so I hope a few of you are raising your hands. Um, Christ Academy and Phoebe Academy are two-week programs that we have here on the campus of our seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. During the summer, when boys for Christ Academy or girls for Phoebe Academy come and get to get a taste of what it's like being at the seminary, a little taste of what it's like studying to be a pastor. Uh, these are a lot of fun, too. They, 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 you do fun stuff. Uh, you get to go to a, a baseball game at our minor league baseball park and uh, eat like crazy before the game at a, a buffet that's laid out for you. There's some fun things in there like that. But you also go to class. Actually, you go to classes. I, I teach sometimes for the students, and I teach them a little tiny bit of what I teach my guys when they come later on. That is, for me, it's teaching them how to preach. Uh, likewise, for deaconess prospects, young ladies who think they might like to be deaconesses, they take classes that are very similar to the classes that they would take if they were studying to be deaconesses. Well, then, let's go to the seminary, okay? Uh, at this point, uh, you have thought about the ministry, being a pastor, or you've thought about being a deaconess, and you uh, now uh, actually have one more step, and th that is the beginning of your, we call it your higher education, and there we're talking about college, okay? And there are many, many, many good choices on this. Our Concordia universities, like Concordia University Chicago, or Concordia University Wisconsin, which is near Milwaukee, in Mequon, Wisconsin, or Concordia University, Ann Arbor, Michigan, or Concordia University, Texas, in Austin, or Concordia University, Irvine, California, and so on, uh, have many different programs for a lot of different areas that people want to study, but they were established in the first place, really, to help equip men to become pastors, to be preparing for the seminary, or women to be teachers, or now deaconesses, uh, Concordia Chicago has a deaconess program right there itself. Okay, a very good, very, very good program. And those are real possibilities. If you're if you know that you want to be a pastor or you know that you want to be a deaconess, then considering carefully the possibility of one of our Concordia universities, great idea. But that's not the only good idea. It's not the idea I had. Um, I was always thinking about being a pastor, like I said, ever ever since confirmation age, but actually I did other things first. I actually uh, was a political science major, and then I got a master's in business administration, and I worked in business, and I worked in Washington, D.C. for a senator for a while before becoming a pastor. And so uh, when I was thinking about what I wanted to do, uh, I, I thought of just a, a good, good university. And uh, where I was in Texas at that time, a good choice was Southern Methodist University. Yes, it says Methodist in there. I was always Lutheran. And it isn't really exactly much of a Methodist school, but it's a good school, very good school. And uh, I got a very good education there in political science. I also took business courses, then went back and got a master's in business later on. Uh, and that kind of thing is a perfectly good option. 
Um, if you think that uh, uh, University of Wisconsin, um, Madison, okay, the big campus, uh, if that appeals to you because you really want to be a Badger and, and you like the basketball team, you like the football team, uh, nothing wrong with that option at all. Good option. And you can study a lot of different things. Uh, there are a lot of different, very good preparations for the ministry besides just uh, going to one of our Concordias. Those are great options. And if you do go to one of our Concordias, you can, for example, if you're studying to be a pastor, you can take Greek language, Hebrew language ahead of time and then not have to take them when you get to the seminary. Because if you come to the seminary, you have to know those or have to learn them, either one, one or the other. Uh, so college, a lot of good choices, but it's a really nice stage also in life to get kind of more information about how you might consider being a, a pastor or a deaconess. Uh, for example, many of our students have come to the seminary after going to the University of Minnesota, where one of our professors now, Dr. Pless, was the campus pastor. And one of our former uh, admissions people, that is like a pastor who recruits pastors, uh, David Kind, who's pastor there for many years. Uh, so uh, people there have gotten great uh, education at the university and have had great experiences growing in faith uh, as a result of uh, uh, being in the campus ministries there. Okay. After that, after you here, see if this is a drag for you, after you do high school and after you do four years of college, then seminary for, for pastors, four more years for deaconesses, three more years. That sounds like a thousand years and it, uh, you know, it's a few, it's a few, but it actually goes back by a lot faster than you think. In fact, when, when students come here uh, for their first year to be pastors, um, they check back with me fourth year and they say, I cannot believe how fast it went. Can't believe how fast it goes. Coming to the seminary, you study in four major areas, okay? Uh, your classes are four major kinds. The first one, in no particular order, but the first one mentioned is called exegetical courses. Exegetical courses, it's easy to say in a shorter way. That is, they're about the Bible. Now, the truth is, all of our courses are really about the Bible. Every one of our courses, we study God's word from Holy Scripture. But the exegetical courses are the ones where you especially like take what you've learned in the Greek language and you study the New Testament in its original language. Because when St. Paul wrote to Titus, he wrote in Greek. Okay. And when Matthew wrote the gospel about Jesus' ministry, he wrote it in Greek. Okay. So in exegetical courses, you study the Gospel of Matthew, or you study maybe St. Paul's letter to the Romans, or you study in Hebrew, the book of Genesis, the Old Testament written in the language of Hebrew. And those courses are obviously very foundational for everything else you do, because like I said, everything we do is really from God's word, okay? Exegetical courses, that's one kind. A second kind, you, you will know this word, historical Historical courses, we, we say historical theology courses, are where we study what the church has taught about the Bible through history. And for example, we would go back to St. Augustine, who lived like four centuries after Christ, okay, and wrote an awful lot of very helpful stuff about the Bible that people in his generation learn from, and we continue to learn from now. Or another, another great name, uh, Athanasius. Athanasius was just a little earlier than Augustine, in, in primarily like the 300s AD, long time ago, okay? And then you skip up ahead, and there are lots of historical figures along the way. We study many, many, many different guys. But one you do know is, of course, Martin Luther, right, from the 1500s, okay? Still 500 years ago, a long time ago, right? But what Luther learned from Holy Scripture and taught is very, very valuable for us today. So uh, courses in historical theology, church history, are very helpful for us. We don't just wake up in 2021 and open the Bible and say, gosh, that's a new idea. What's going on here? But actually, for 2,000 years, Christians have been studying the Bible and they are very good teachers for us. Just like your, your uh, academy teachers are very good teachers. So also 
the, the Christian leaders through the centuries are good, good teachers of the Bible. Okay, exegetical, historical. The next one, systematic theology. That's another, another word we may not recognize so easily, but it's easy to explain. Systematic theology is like where you take passages from all over the Bible and bring together the ones that address like the same kind of question. Like, for example, in Titus, we referred to this before, in Titus chapter 3, St. Paul talks about baptism. He says it's the washing of regeneration, okay, that makes us a new person. But then in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter says baptism now saves you. So you got Titus from St. Paul and you got 1 Peter from Peter, both talking about baptism. And of course, we know that in uh, all uh, three of the, we call them the synoptic gospels, really all four of the gospels, there's a reference to Jesus himself being baptized. Like in Matthew chapter three, it says, Jesus went down to the water, John the Baptist baptized him, the Holy Spirit appeared like a dove, the Father from heaven said, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. So there, Matthew talks about baptism. And at the end of Matthew, uh, Matthew quotes Jesus where he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Okay, so systematic theology takes, uh, takes passages from Titus and passages from Peter, First Peter, and passages from Matthew on the subject of baptism and brings it together, and it teaches us about baptism. Or other passages all over Scripture teach us about Holy Communion. And passages from all over Scripture teach us that we are justified by grace through faith. God declares us forgiven of all of our sins, not by anything we do, but just by what Jesus did on the cross. Okay? Systematic theology takes passages from lots of different places in Scripture and brings them together on topics. Can you guys think of any place that you have studied systematic theology? A place where, a setting where, you've had lots of passages from Scripture brought together to address certain topics. In confirmation class, you study Luther's small catechism, right? And we talk about the six chief parts, right? Where you study about the Ten Commandments, but when you're studying the first commandment, you don't just look at Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 5. You also see other places in Scripture that talk about how we might have other gods instead of the true God, right? And you talk about the chief part of baptism, like we said before, or the chief part of, of the Lord's Supper, like we said before, right? The catechism is actually systematic theology. So you guys have pretty much all, or soon will, study systematic theology. At the seminary, you do more of that. And that's true. In fact, all three of these classes, these kinds of classes that we've mentioned, uh, exegetical, systematic, and historical, are all studied also by deaconess students. The fourth kind of class that we study is what we call pastoral theology or diaconal theology. Those are different, of course, for pastors and deaconesses. Some of them overlap. What we call these pastoral theology or deacon, diaconal theology courses are things like teaching. How do you teach people the catechism, for example, or counseling? If someone has a, you know, a, a real problem that's really troubling them, how, how do you share God's word with them in a way that it's helpful to them in that situation? Uh, deaconesses study that. They, they study both of those teaching, um, uh, counseling, um, outreach, missions, evangelism. What are some ways that you can help tell other people about Jesus just in ordinary life settings, okay? Uh, that we also do for pastors and deaconesses. And then there are things that are just for deaconesses, and there are things that are just for pastors. Now, Mrs. Benson at the beginning introduced me by saying the thing that I teach, the thing I have that PhD in, uh, called homiletics. Homiletics is the, the art of preaching. Okay? It's, it's, a, it's a word that talks about taking uh, words and bring them together into a kind of a unified way so that like in a sermon, you talk about a particular aspect of God's word. Homiletics actually takes the whole process, kind of everything we've talked about and figures out how you're going to preach it. 
because you're going to start with biblical theology, right? Exegetical theology. You're going to start with a text from the Bible, and you're going to carefully consider how the church has understood that passage through history, right? And you're definitely going to consider if this is one of those passages that teaches us about baptism or about the Lord's Supper and so on. And then you're going to take all that stuff and you're going to figure out, now, what's a way that I can proclaim that wonderful truth of Christ from this passage in Scripture in a way that everyone can understand? Because God's word of Christ Jesus is how God has been shaping all of us from the very beginning, right? From baptism on, right? And that's very much what pastors will do. First of all, exegetical theology. Number two, historical theology. Number three, systematic theology. And number four, pastoral theology or diaconal theology. Okay, got all that? That's stuff that we study at the seminary. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.